So SETI Alpha 5 is the one that exploded, right? Or SETI Alpha... No, 6 exploded! Damn it! <laughs> okay, alright, well, it's kind of exploding. It's kind of exploding! Hey, Explorers! This is Mike Wong, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Besides sharing cool scientific results that relate to Star Trek in one way or another, one of the missions of this podcast is to share what it's like to be a scientist through the interviews that I have with fellow scientists and scientist Trekkies. To accomplish this goal, I like to bring you content from all kinds of meetings and conferences that I attend. And this time, it's the Sagan Summer Workshop, an annual exoplanet-themed gathering at Caltech, named after the singular Carl Sagan. This year's focus was astrobiology, so naturally, I just had to be there. And at the Sagan workshop, I got to catch up with Dr. Peter Gao, my friend, colleague, and recurring podcast guest star. In case you haven't heard Peter's voice on this podcast before, he is a planetary scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, and a diehard Trekkie. But most importantly for today, he's a person who recently shared some very exciting news via Facebook and Twitter. A few days ago, a proposal I co-led got selected, and I was pretty happy. Mostly because I was going to get some data to play with, I'll get to work with some cool folks, and it'll look good on my CV. But after a weekend away from my work, I realized that it was so much more. I've been in academia for so long, but I've forgotten how incredible what I get to do really is. Sometime in the next year, the Hubble Space Telescope will be turning its sights to a brand new planet forming around a brand new star, only about 10 million years old, just a baby, where it will try to look for traces of water vapor and methane gas in its alien atmosphere, and also signs of the planet being boiled away by its star, all because some cool folks and I proposed it. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I will one day tell the Hubble Space Telescope what to do, and yet, here we are. So, I just had to ask him more about his process of writing a winning telescope proposal, and the science that he's planning to do with one of humankind's most marvelous machines. Without further ado, my interview with Dr. Peter Gao at the Sagan Workshop. So... As a scientist, it's always very important to get together with other scientists from other institutions, learn from each other, and share ideas, bounce ideas off of each other. So that's sort of the point of a workshop like this for practicing scientists, to get a survey of the field of astrobiology and about exoplanets from some of the experts in their various disciplines that contribute to the growing knowledge of our quest to understand whether or not we're alone in the universe. 
and also to share our own research through presentations or poster sessions with everybody else and get feedback about our own research. And from that, hopefully new novel ideas will spring forth from the intersection of two people's brainwaves or the superposition of their brainwaves, I guess. Um, so how has this workshop been for you, Peter? The second workshop, I think, is, is special uh, even among conferences and other workshops because it has always been uh, focused on teaching students. So the audience at uh, larger conferences tend to be a well mix of senior scientists, junior scientists, and students. But this year and uh, in the previous years as well, the second workshop has had many more students than the average conference. So a lot of bright young faces eager to learn from the experts in the field who give 30-minute to one-hour talks about very broad topics, sort of overviews, if you will. And these speakers who have come here from various distant places have the opportunity to actually have a meal with the students. And so there have been these wonderful speaker lunches. And Peter, you've been attending some of those. So what insights do you think that you've gained from getting to sit down at a table and a meal with somebody that you wouldn't gain from a lecture from them? So there's a, there's a secret to how science works, and is that collaborations and new ideas spring not during talks, but during drinks and dinners and lunches. <laughs> uh, it is really with casual conversation that scientists come up with interesting ideas and find out about new ideas or new information that can lead to new uh, research. And so in some ways, these lunches were similar. But because there were so many students, they were also different because instead of talking about new research ideas, there was a lot of talk about academia culture about the current state of being a student in academia and how to move forward with careers. So I feel these launches have been very useful for that because it tends to evolve towards having the speaker give academic and career advice to the younger students, which I really appreciate. Great. Yeah, that's that's something that is always so useful for people like us who are sort of just finished our PhDs, we've just stopped being students, and we're looking to plot a trajectory through academia, through scientific enterprises in general, to contribute eventually in hopefully big ways to the growth of knowledge and wonder that humanity is able to achieve. So as young people, we're experiencing things for the first time, you know, maybe writing our first grant proposals or winning your first fellowship or getting your first job interview. You recently had a really big first. What was that, Peter? Yeah. So for the first time, I managed to get time on the Hubble Space Telescope. So what does that mean to get time? Right. So now uh, this is a perfect opportunity to talk about the interplay between the different kinds of scientists studying planets, both inside and outside our solar system. For those of us who study planets outside of our solar system, exoplanets, it will be very hard to go there in probes like the Cassini spacecraft or the Juno spacecraft currently orbiting Jupiter. We have to study these worlds through our telescopes, uh, either the ones on the ground or the ones in space. So in order to get time on any of these telescopes, those on the ground or those in space, 
we have to apply for time. And by time, we mean, say, several nights on telescopes on the ground. You can only observe other planets, other stars at night. Or in terms of a spacecraft, number of orbits or the number of hours. So the Hubble Space Telescope orbits the Earth every 90 minutes or so. And so time on Hubble is counted in orbits. Now, other telescopes like the Spitzer Space Telescope, because it doesn't orbit the Earth, at least not in low Earth orbit, its observing time is counted in hours. So either way, because uh, we are in competition with other astronomers observing other objects, we have to write a convincing proposal to tell the people who are in charge of these telescopes why we should get time to observe our targets. That's really interesting, and it's something that maybe people in general don't realize about how astronomical observations work. And so it seems like because we don't have starships to travel the stars to explore these strange new worlds, we just have these observatories, some of which are on the ground, as you said, and some of which are in space. Hubble is probably the most famous observatory in space because it's one of the best, right? And we can talk about why it's so good for the observations that you want to do in particular, but a lot of people want to observe with Hubble, but it can only stare at one thing at a time, right? That's right. And so you're kind of all fighting for the opportunity to tell Hubble what to do. And so Peter, how did you feel when you got the news that you got to tell Hubble what to do? So I was ecstatic. Most of my work has been theoretical. I use computer models to simulate planets to try and understand the physical processes at work. And there's a lot of us theorists studying exoplanets, but there's also a lot of observers who use telescopes to obtain data that then feed back into our models. I believe that I was firmly on the theorist and modeler side, but this year I was presented with a very interesting opportunity to try my hand at being an observer. And so it was pretty much just for fun, just to see if I can, I can make this happen. But it happened. My proposal got chosen, and now in a couple of months' time, the Hubble Space Telescope will do what I tell it to. And that's amazing. So you're sort of like the guest captain of the Hubble Space Telescope, giving the commands, bearing 281, mark 47. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm the uh, emergency command hologram. You're the, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So you won the right to take over the Hubble Space Telescope. And what are you going to tell it to do? So we're going to tell it to observe a star. And... A lot of exoplanet observations are like this. We want to target specific exoplanets to learn more about that object and also see if we can extend what we learn there to other objects, other exoplanets. And so it's very important which target you choose. So my target is AUMIC. The star's name is AUMIC. And it, Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. The star's name? Is AUMIC. So literally the letter A followed by the letter U, U and then space and then, and then MIC. M-I-C? M-I-C. So that's short for AU microscopy. And now I'm just reading the Wikipedia entry for this star. <laughs> it is a small star located 32.3 light years away. 
So for those who have warp speed calculators, you can try to figure out how long it takes to travel that uh, at warp nine. Make it so. Make it so. Engage. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very special because it is a relatively young star. Now, for reference, our sun is about four point five to five billion years old. This star is only a little more than ten million years old. It's a baby star. It's a baby star. Exactly. It's just in its infancy, and so by assumption, the planets that orbit it are also young. And so, trying to observe a young planet can tell us a lot about how they form and how they evolve、uh, at the beginnings of their life. Another cool thing about AU microscopy is that it is a red star. It is what we call an M dwarf or a red dwarf, a relatively small star, a relatively red and cool star. And so very different from the sun. And so studying a planet around such a cool star will tell us about how planets form and evolve around a different kind of star. And importantly, this is kind of the the big point is that these red dwarfs make up most of the stars in our galaxy. Our sun is actually not a normal star. It is brighter and bigger than most stars in the galaxy. And so we're going to observe this star. But our target is not really the star. Our target is a newly discovered planet orbiting it. So the typical naming scheme for exoplanets is just adding a B after the star's name. So the planet's name right now is AU Mc B. But this, who knows? This, this sounds like something from the McDonald's Happy Meal menu.、Yeah. Like I'd like an AU Mc B, please.、Yes. Extra fries. I'm sorry, we're we're out. You're gonna have to order an AU Mc C. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um. But who knows? Maybe in in two hundred, three hundred years, when we have star chefs and we can visit these things, we can give it a, a fancier name, like SETI Alpha Five or something. <laughs> um, so speaking of SETI Alpha Five, <laughs> <laughs> so this planet was recently found using the TESS satellite, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. That's right. So TESS is another space telescope. It is positioned somewhat far from Earth. At least it's not in low Earth orbit. And its mission is to observe nearly the entire sky in search of exoplanets, and it works by using the transit method, where you measure the periodic dimming of stars due to planets crossing in front of them from our perspective. And so, sometime last year, TESS observed a UMIC and found periodic dimming. And afterwards, scientists found that in fact these dimmings. Likely corresponded to one or more planets, and so Eumic B was found. Current estimates place Eumic B in an orbit that lasts about eight days around its host star, and it has a size somewhere between that of our own Neptune and our own Saturn. So it's it's a hefty fella, but it's not Jupiter size, and it's not as small as Earth. And planets like this doesn't exist in the solar system, obviously, because the next Largest planet after Saturn is Neptune. So if there's a planet somewhere in between, that's very exciting because we don't know how these planets really form or evolve. So this planet has already been discovered by a different telescope from Hubble. Now you're training Hubble's eye on this planet. What specific measurements are you looking to make with Hubble that will teach you something more about this young baby forming planet? So the great thing about Hubble is that it allows us to take spectra. All right. So, what does that mean? So, we have to go back to what TESS does. TESS is what us in the astronomy field like to call a light bucket, <laughs> <laughs> which means 
Uh, it has, in this case, four cameras that just take pictures of the sky with a filter, which means it only allows certain wavelengths of light through. And light within this wavelength range is not differentiated among each other. And while a light bucket can tell us how bright something is, which will help us find periodic dimmings and find planets, measuring the brightness of an object at different wavelengths of light can tell us about composition and important atmospheric processes. So the Hubble Space Telescope allows us to observe across a wide range of wavelengths, including the wavelengths that we're familiar with, the optical. So that includes the rainbow, for example. Light that have wavelengths longer than red belong in the near-infrared. And light that has wavelengths shorter than violet is in the ultraviolet. Sometimes we call it the near-ultraviolet if it's just a little bit shorter than violet. So what we're going to try to do with Hubble is to observe AU-MIC-B both in the ultraviolet and the near-infrared. And why are we doing this? So these two observations are after two different goals. In the ultraviolet, we can find fingerprints of specific gases and molecules. For example, in the ultraviolet, we can observe hints of hydrogen loss from the planet. And hydrogen loss from a planet is indicative of the loss of the atmosphere of the planet. Essentially, we can see whether this planet is exploding right now. Exploding? Yes, like SETI Alpha 6! <laughs> Wait, what do you mean by exploding? Right. How can there be an exploding planet? So there's two things at work. One is that, this is a bit, remember, this is a very young system, only 10 plus million years. At this stage, the planet is just beginning to feel light from the star because planets form in large disks, in clouds, and now it's being bombarded by high energy radiation from its star. So the gas disk has dissipated. It's dissipated. And it's like the sun is shining on the planet for the first time. Yeah, but it's shining too hard. And, and, and this is causing it to explode. Yes. So essentially, high energy radiation from the star, and we're talking about, again, also UV radiation from the star, is feeding energy into the upper atmosphere of this baby planet. And if enough energy is delivered, the gas molecules that are in the upper reaches of the atmosphere, where gravity is relatively low because you're far away from the core of the planet, can just escape if they acquire enough energy from the star. And based on uh, model calculations, this planet should be losing its atmosphere at a rate that we can observe using the Hubble Space Telescope. So young stars are also very like tumultuous too. Baby stars like to throw tantrums. That's right. Especially these small, dim red stars. They throw the biggest tantrums of them all, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> but uh, this is really dangerous for your, your between Neptune and Saturn-sized planet. And for that kind of planet, it should have a large portion of it as hydrogen. And so basically by losing a lot of hydrogen really fast, essentially the planet is... Exploding. Exploding. <laughs> exploding. It's a slow explosion. It's, okay, it's a slow explosion, but it's still pretty dramatic. Right, right. It's, don't think of this in terms of the Zindi weapon blowing up Earth. It's not that dramatic. But it is still a planet that's losing a lot of its mass. And if you come back to this planetary system in a couple of million years, it'll probably look pretty different. That's really fascinating that these planets can dramatically evolve in a very short, geologically speaking, amount of time. 
And you're trying to catch this evolution in action because you found this young star system where a planet may actually be undergoing these changes. And you will be able to find that with the Hubble Space Telescope. That's so exciting. You also mentioned that you're going to be looking in the infrared wavelengths. So what can the infrared wavelengths of light tell you? Yeah, so different molecules absorb different wavelengths of light. In the near-infrared, instead of looking for hydrogen escape, we can look for signs of water and methane. And on Earth, these are extremely important gases. On certain exoplanets, they just hang out in the atmosphere. But they tell us a lot about the composition of that atmosphere, including how much oxygen, how much carbon is there, in addition to the typical hydrogen and helium that you find in these larger planets. And so in the near-infrared, we're going to try to measure their abundances. And these abundances will also feed on the ultraviolet observations because by looking at different wavelengths, we're also probing different heights in the atmosphere. In the ultraviolet, we're probing very high up in the atmosphere where it's escaping, whereas in the near-infrared, we're probing lower down the atmosphere. And so by observing both of these wavelengths, we can actually connect the deep part of the atmosphere which acts as the reservoir of most of the gas to the upper part of the atmosphere, which is escaping but taking gas from the deeper part of the atmosphere. So this sounds really great. And I'm, I'm so excited for you, you know, because you are going to be captain of the Hubble for a short period of time. But, you know, every, every good captain needs a good crew. And so what was the experience like working with a group of people to put together this kind of proposal? Yeah, so it was a great experience. And I would say I'm not even captain, I'm sort of co-captain. I'm leading half of the team focused on the near-infrared observations, and Professor Elizabeth Newton at Dartmouth University is leading the other half on the ultraviolet half of the observations. So together, we rallied a group of other theorists and observers to help us with writing the proposal and now to organize the observations. So it's a great crew and we're eager to do some science. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. And, um, you know, as one of the leaders, as one of the co-captains of this team, you probably had to get people to do things, uh, set deadlines, motivate them. What kind of leadership style do you think you have? What captain from Star Trek do you think most reflects how you approached being one of the co-captains of this project? Oh, I wouldn't survive a day in Starfleet. <laughs> I think I was pretty nice about it. Um, the great thing about science is that a lot of people share your goals, and that goal is to understand the universe. So when I pitched this idea to my colleagues and my collaborators, they were very eager to help. And because we all knew when the deadlines were, we didn't really have problems with people lagging behind. When I told someone to do something... I gave them an ample deadline, and they typically got back to me well before that deadline because they knew how important this was to everyone on the team. So I would say I was the friendly captain. So who would that be? Not really Jean-Luc. No, maybe not... Archer. Archer's kind of... I think Archer was kind of friendly with a lot of people. I think... Yeah, I'm Archer. Captain be Archer. Before he became unethical. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the Zindi arc here. Yeah, exactly. Again, don't think in terms of the... We're not looking at uh, an exploding planet like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you would say Picard, because mm -hmm. that would have been an excellent transition into my next question, which is purely about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can also talk about Picard, because that's 
ridiculously exciting. The the teasers for the Picard show are exploding my mind the same way your planet is exploding. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. There's, there's so much radiance and energy entering my brain that I'm losing mass. Okay, this is going too far. Okay, <laughs> bad analogy. But, okay, Captain Jean-Luc Picard is back. And in the promos, he has a dog. What do you think the dog's name is? His little tag says number one. Really? A little dog tag if you zoom in. Oh my god. So Riker. Yeah, somehow Riker be- Riker went faster than warp 10. Became a dog. <laughs> That's preferable to a lizard, I think. <laughs> At least you get pets. Yeah. <laughs> and belly rubs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From the little bits that we've received so far, how do you feel about this new enterprise? I'm very excited. Having um, Sir Pat Stew in the writer's room and having him decide or help decide where his character goes, I think is extremely important. Patrick Stewart, of course, is not just an amazing actor. He's an amazing human being. So I think he has an idea of how to appeal to audiences and how to write the best stories. Uh, So for that, I'm very, very excited. And from all the other descriptions, such as that it's going to be a 10-hour long movie, it's going to do a lot of character work, it's more contemplative. I think we're in for a very uh, intellectual, very thoughtful Star Trek. Similar to TNG, I would say. Funny that. Excellent. (laughs) Make it so. (laughs) (laughs) That's my interview with Dr. Peter Gao, who recently received the exciting news that his proposal to steer the Hubble Space Telescope towards a particular patch of sky, was chosen. Time is everything for astronomers in the 21st century. Without a fleet of warp-capable starships, scientists must compete for the precious resource of telescope time. I'm so happy for Peter and his crew, who before long will be learning astonishing things about that strange new world, A.U. McBee and gaining brand new insights into the general principles of planetary formation. And when that happens, I'll have him back on this podcast to share its wonders with us all. Next time, I'll have more exciting interviews from the Sagan Summer Workshop. Until then, see you out there. This is Sandy Over 5.